Hello and welcome to episode 126 of the Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is the Repeat Beat Poet, aka PJ, your host doing the most as always. I hope you're doing okay. There's still a pandemic on, so I hope you're keeping safe as you can wherever you are listening. I'm quite excited to share this with you. It's the first full-length interview I've hosted for Luna. But since 2015, when I began writing and performing poetry, I've sought out the spaces for critical discussion around poetry. I've looked for people talking freely and at length and in depth about their creativity and their work. So that's the energy I'll be continuing to carry as I host these conversations. Stick around until the end of the show to hear more about plans for the future, including upcoming guests. But for now, let's get into this week's episode. This week's guest is Katie Ailes, the Scotland-based poet and academic. Uh, She's also a teacher, dancer, editor, producer, and a member of the Loud Poets, uh, a landmark poetry collective at the heart of the current UK and Scottish spoken word scenes. Uh, Katie's just completed her PhD at the University of Strathclyde, focusing on the performance and perception of authenticity in contemporary UK spoken word poetry, um, which is a topic that's been much discussed, but far less actually studied and researched and written about. So I read this near 400-page PhD as if it was a serialised novel, taking a chapter each night for a couple of nights, and it's a fantastically in-depth study into the culture of spoken word poetry today, a real vanguard piece of writing that shows how the critical landscapes around spoken word specifically and poetry more generally are shifting to better recognise and value the artistic work being produced by writers in this most popular of styles. I think building and maintaining critical frameworks around poetry is going to be really important as poetry enjoys yet another popular resurgence, so where better to start with a conversation around poetry and authenticity with Dr. Katie Ailes. We sat down for an extended chat in our respective flats in East London and Leith um, on December the 10th, 2020, to talk about the politics of performance, the critical discourse or lack thereof around spoken word, and we firmly put the concept of the cult of the noble amateur on blast. Uh, Check the description for all of the relevant links, including the episode transcript, so you can read along with the poems and Katie's links too. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with somebody who also might enjoy it. Word of mouth has always been the best recommendation for us, and the more people talking about poetry, the better. Without any further ado, let's get into the conversation. Hello to you, the wonderful Katie Ailes. Are you there? I am here. Hello to you, the wonderful PJ. It is wonderful to be here. 
Uh, it's um, wonderful to be starting off uh, the new area, the new the new zone, the new uh, epoch of the Lunar Poetry Podcast with uh, with yourself. Um, I've spoken a tiny bit about you in the introduction, but can you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely, yeah, and it's a huge honor to to be on Lunar. Um, I, I guess the phrase is "long time listener, first time caller." Um, but but I just wanted to say, yeah, a huge thanks um, to you for having me on, and and a big thanks to David Turner for all of the fantastic work that he did in in establishing this pod. I'm really excited to see where you take it, PJ. Um, so yeah, so about myself, um, I am a Scotland-based uh, poet, producer, academic, and, and educator, um, all working around the field of contemporary spoken word poetry in the UK. Um, so I, as a, as a producer, I work with the company I Am Loud Productions. Um, we're also known by Loud Poets. Um, and so we've been going about six years producing events and various projects in the Scottish spoken word scene. Um, and as an academic, um, I, I recently completed my PhD uh, at the University of Strathclyde looking at authenticity in contemporary spoken word poetry. So I'm really interested um, both as, as an academic and as a writer in the idea of um, what is real and what we consider to be genuine in this genre. So yeah, more, more or less me in a nutshell there. <laughs> It sounds like you're spinning a lot of plates and spinning them <laughs> with expert skill, I must say. I'm, I'm glad it looks like that from from the outside. You know, there, there's a lot of broken plates, you know, shattering around me, but 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 I do try. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so I know that you are so active in, in many of the kind of um, uh, areas of facilitation and also mm. scholarship around poetry and spoken word. But primarily, you are also a writer. So I'm thinking maybe we could open up with a poem to start off this section. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really nice, actually, to, to have myself sort of introduced in that way and have that acknowledged because I think, um, and I, I'm curious, you know, maybe later in the conversation to, to hear whether this is your experience as well. But I think for a lot of us, you know, who work in various capacities in the scene, sometimes it gets forgotten that we're also, you know, poets in our own rights, or we forget that we're also poets in our own rights, um, given given the other sorts of work that we do. Um, but yeah, no, I'd love to start with a poem. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna share a poem that um, you very sweetly requested, um, which is about um, sort of coming to Scotland and and finding my home here. Uh, so I'm, you know. <laughs> obviously not not originally from Scotland, uh, but I moved here about six years ago and um, really com completely fell in love with it and um, particularly fell in love with the language and the respect for for poetry and um, really sort of the, the cultural diversity and linguistic diversity here. So I wrote an ode to my favourite uh, Scottish word uh, and it's called Outwith. <clears throat> out with, preposition meaning outside, beyond, a term unique to Scotland. Revising my visa essay, applying for three more years here, I read my own scribbled words. <clears throat> Comparable opportunities for critical study do not exist out with Scotland. Out with, 
a term unfamiliar yet scrawled in my own hand, doubtlessly mine. And I wonder. I came here all rude American brass, all trash can, fanny pack, where's the castle? Then Glasgow rolled itself under my tongue, smooth, a gray marble lolling my mouth open with O's, Glasgow, Kelvin Grove, going to Tesco. Then, thistling my speech, we sleek at lisps, we packets of crisps, my lips like the lids of those glass bottles of sand I used to collect from every beach, my mouth the shore, holding each grain that had altered the flow of my speech, my pen flowing S, into the cursive waves of socialized, civilized, acclimatized, answering, I, by accident, then smiling. I may be from out, but I am now with. Oh, it's such a, such a joy to hear that piece, which <laughs> I haven't heard, I haven't heard in person for, I think, maybe three years, the last oh time gosh, I, I, yeah. I saw you read. Wow. Yeah, um, <laughs> And you do a you do a great job in explaining through that poem um, some of what it was like to move from uh, the US mm. and then find a home in Scotland. Um, I suppose I wanted to kick this interview off with asking you, um, how did you find poetry when you came to Scotland? Yeah, um, I mean, because poetry is so much of the reason why I, I've i settled here, why I'm staying here. Um, so I initially, yeah, as I said, I've, I've lived in Scotland for about six years, uh, just over six years now. But the first time I came here was uh, over eight years ago. And I was uh, just a wee undergrad student on my semester abroad. And I, I picked Edinburgh somewhat on a whim. Uh, I'd, I'd never really left North America before. And so um, I came here and I just completely fell in love, not only with the city and the people, but more so um, or equally so with the respect for literary culture here and, and sort of cultural expression of all kinds. Um, and we talk about it so much that it's almost cliched, but, you know, Scotland is a country where we have a national holiday celebrating, you know, a, a famous poet and people actually celebrate that holiday every year, you know, and it, it, it's not just historical figures, you know, there, there's really a, a deep respect for literary expression, which I think continues into the present day and, and the respect for contemporary poets. So that's something that I've really appreciated being here. Um, and so when I first came here, I, I'd, I'd been writing poetry for a while, but I hadn't really been performing it. I actually was, was more focused on dancing. Um, I, I grew up as, as a dancer and, I, I sort of had the epiphany that I could combine the liveness and the physicality that I loved from dance with the uh, linguistic expression that I loved about poetry through doing spoken word, you know, that I, I could be on a stage and communicating in real time with people using my poetry, but also that I could choreograph movements to go along with it and um, that it could have that sort of immediate expressive feel. Um, and so I, I entered slams uh, over here during my term abroad, sort of bolstered by the fact that at that point, I assumed, you know, this is just a, a semester abroad. I'm going to leave at the end of four months. I'm never going to see any of these people again. So I can be brave and I can just, you know, go nuts and, and share this poetry. Um, 
and, you know, lost a slam and then won a slam and, and just completely fell in love with it. And of course, then a year and a half later moved back and, and settled here permanently. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of what drew me here. And then as soon as I moved back, I, I got really involved in the scene and met the folks who at that time were doing loud poets and, and, you know, developed, you know, professional and personal relationships with them. And yeah, things, things just sort of built from there. Okay, let's um let's let's dig into to the wonderful institution that is Loud Poetry <laughs> and I Am Loud Productions. Yeah. Um, because you've you've led us there. Um one of the many things that uh, interests me about um Loud Poets is how you expanded um from being mm. well primarily poetry focused to moving into loud comedy, loud film, mm. um so many different avenues to put creativity out there but also always incorporating poetry um yeah. i don't need to tell you about how iconic your your fringe shows are each year <laughs> how much of a staple they are um but i suppose that the question i wanted to ask is um how how and why did you want to expand loud poets into all of this extra stuff and how has that been uh yeah how, how have you achieved that Hmm. Thank, yeah. Thanks for that question. I think, um, you know, from, from the start when we started and I, I wasn't here for the initial phases of it. Um, but, uh, the, the folks who were organizing it at that time realized that there, there wasn't really, uh, a platform solely dedicated to spoken words. So when, when we started out, it was very much focused on, okay, how can we provide a platform for this live performance-based art form in Scotland? And, and that's not to say that there weren't other nights that were doing it. You know, we, we very much are building on the shoulders of giants here. Um, but that's where we started. But from that very first night, we were working with live musicians. And so we wanted to try to yeah, provide a platform for poets who are interested in live performance, who are interested in innovating within that form, and who wanted, or at least were open to collaboration with other artists, whether they were um, musicians or visual artists or filmmakers. So that was sort of built into it from the beginning. And then um, for a while, for about, you know, three years, we were really focused on producing these monthly events, um, where it was always spoken word poets with live musicians um, and really developing um, an excellence in, in that and developing networks and providing opportunities for younger poets um, and just new poets of any age to get involved in this um, and to hone their skills. So that's that's where we started. And then um, you very kindly mentioned our fringe shows. Um, every year we try to do something new and different and pushing the envelope with our fringe shows. And we try to feature the best of the best of UK spoken word um from across the UK and that's that's really important to us to really develop those networks and um connect Scotland with the rest of the UK um by yeah by introducing folks who who are performing in this genre um wherever they are based and so with the fringe shows particularly we've really started working with background visuals and and seeing what we could project behind the stage and how we could encourage the poets to interact with that, you know, how we could really create this holistic experience. Um, and also working with our musicians. So for a lot of our shows, the musicians would um, 
work with the sort of core poets of the show to uh, compose specific tracks that they would play live on stage with our poems. But then we would also have guests who would come on just for individual one-off shows and the musicians would improvise behind them. So so there's sort of a variety of different styles of collaboration with the musicians. Um, so yeah, again, that's, that's sort of always been built into our ethos. And when we officially um, incorporated as, as a company, um, gosh, it'll be about, about two years ago at this point, uh, we decided to really make that official and to say, look, we're really, obviously, our, our founding passion was in spoken word, but we are so curious about what we can do when we combine art forms. So we have, you know, loud poetry, but we also have loud comedy and loud film. And I think particularly during lockdown, particularly given the limitations that we're facing right now, and the fact that we can't run li- live events, um, we've tried to use this um, rather than just sitting around going, oh, this is so frustrating. We've tried to use this time as an opportunity to really dive into what we can do with digital media um, and to produce high quality poetry films and um, other sorts of films and, and digital workshops and various things like that. Um, we're currently running a series called Return to Form, which we're really grateful to have secured Creative Scotland funding for, um, which again... Didn't take is... them long enough, did they? You know? <laughs> Creative we're... Scotland, six times, six times the charm. Yep, yep, fifth, fifth application. Yep, it's... Um, well, regardless, we're, we're glad to have it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> you I'll... can be diplomatic. I can be petty. <laughs> there we are. There we are. Yeah, um, but it, it is just, you know, because up until this point, everything that we've done has been off our own backs um, and has been, you know, trying to support poets as best we can and trying to build a sustainable scene in which we're paying everyone fairly, but just off the backs of ticket sales, which, you know, as as you'll know, is incredibly hard. So we're, we're really, really grateful to um, have secured some, <laughs> some external funds for this. Um, but yeah, ba- basically, um, without rambling too much, I, I think this sort of cross-disciplinary innovation is something that the spoken word scene has always done really well. You know, poets are always collaborating with musicians and film and and all of that. And I think that that's a real strength of the art form that we've tried to um, dig into um, with what we're doing as a company. Yeah. It's, um, it's always a pleasure to hear an independent organization who have become known for supporting poets up and down the country Mm. and supporting poets externally outside of the country as well. Um, It's always good to know that you guys um, have kept those, uh, those, those, those business and ethical, you know, uh, you've kept those business and ethical decisions as important as making sure that the poetry comes first. You know what I mean? You've facilitated yeah. a way in which not only can you support poets from uh, from from Scotland, England, Northern Ireland, Ireland, mm. um, and you can also support them by putting them out across lots of different platforms, which is something that is um, 
often goes uncelebrated is is a polite way of saying but i think it's a fundamental part of of really breaking down these arbitrary barriers in 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 mediums or in geography or in forms and so i want to say thank you to 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 the lab poets for doing that across six years oh thank thank you yeah and it's it's also really gratifying to hear you know you as someone based in london talking about this because i think It's very easy to, you know, when you're developing a scene to focus on the local artists who are there. And, you know, that that is logical. That makes sense. But, you know, one thing that we have tried to do is to knit together that scene. And, you know, we have we have the benefit of being Edinburgh based. So during the fringe, you know, for for one month every year, except for 2020, weep, weep. Um, but, you know, for, for one month every year, a lot of amazing poets come to us. And so curating guest lineups for our fringe shows has been very easy because the cream of the crop is, you know, sort of at our doorstep. But um, the contrast can be pretty, you know, stark when then it's September and, you know, a lot of Scottish artists and, you know, I'll, I'll try not to, to get too petty here, but, you know, that isn't always reciprocated and often Scottish artists aren't. Um, and, you know, I should say the same for Northern Ireland, Ireland and Wales, you know, those folks aren't necessarily booked for gigs in England. And obviously England is quite a large country. There are North and South divides and all of that as well. Um, but it's been quite interesting during lockdown to see which nights, it, you know, who are running online events where obviously travel fees aren't a restriction anymore, which nights are then using that as an opportunity to book poets who live further afield, who they maybe couldn't afford to book previously, and which nights are just booking people within their local circles again and again. So, um, yeah, not not trying to be too petty there, but I, I do think that, you know, if you are someone who is running a promotion, if you are someone who is organizing a night, one of the responsibilities that you have to your audience is to introduce them to a diverse range of voices. And I think, um, I mean, diversity here in a very broad sense. I also mean geographical diversity and stylistic diversity on top of all of the other forms of diversity, racial and gender, and all of that, that we, that we tend to talk about, um, more overtly, uh, all of these things are incredibly important. And so when you're curating an event, you know, I think it's so important to think about whose voice have we not showcased and how can we actively work to incorporate them into our lineup to really benefit our audiences. So, yeah. Thank you. I think that's, um, it's an important point to keep at the forefront of, um, of people who are interested in poetry, people who are listening to poetry, people who are who are hopefully buying poetry and supporting mm. poets, is that it's not only a diversity of um, of, uh, of 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 race or sexuality or gender. It's a diversity of of form and diversity of mediums, a diversity yes. of, of people from different geographical locations, and all of these differences make poetry a better thing because it allows it to be more universal by being truly representative um i find um and that's uh, that's something i wanted to start this new era of the lunar poetry podcast with so thank you for bringing that important message to us as well <laughs> that's all good that's all good and again you know something that that podcasts like this do with such strength i was introduced to so many poets um from around the uk by listening to lunar and you know by watching you know shout out to tyrone lewis you know his excellent um documentaries about the spoken word scene in the uk so i'm i'm so incredibly grateful for the people who 
are documenting the scene and, you know, whether it's through podcasts or through their YouTube channels and all of that, you know, Peter Hayhoe is someone who's done great work through Muddy Feet, um, you know, just to, to, through digital spaces, um, expose audiences around the UK and really around the world to a variety of voices. So yeah, super important. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, maybe we can take another poem now before jumping into the deep, wonderful weeds of the authenticity PhD that you scribed. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Um, I'm gonna take a take a sip of water before jumping into those weeds because they're 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 pretty heavy weeds. Um, <laughs> that's one way of describing a PhD. Mm. Um. So yeah, I think for this next one, um, obviously I, I briefly mentioned the I Am Loud Return to Form project. And um, in a nutshell, what we're doing with that is we're trying to celebrate um, the range of poetic styles out there. And I think sometimes spoken word um, gets a bad rep when people just say, oh, well, it's all it's all just basic free verse and there's not really any form to it. Um, and that just absolutely does my nut in. And when I'm, you know, teaching poetry on a, on a university level or really any sort of poetry workshop, one thing that I try to encourage students to focus on is how much, um, structure is built into spoken word. Um, and obviously it very much depends on different people's styles, but encouraging them to go, okay, it's not just about iambic pentameter. It's also about internal rhyme and different rhythmic structures and, you know, alliteration and assonance and consonants and all of these things, you know, and trying to get them to see how much spoken word is crafted and is structured. And um, this will tie into what, what I'll speak about briefly with the PhD as well. But basically with this form, what we've done, or with this project rather, what we've done is we've challenged um, 10 spoken word artists each to write new poems in traditional poetic forms. So we've got uh, Sestinas, concrete poems, univocal poems, golden shovels, and Shakespearean sonnets. Um, and for a lot of these poets, this is sort of the first time or the first time in a while that they've written in these forms. And it's been really incredible to see what they've come up with. Um, we're also releasing workshops um, where basically I'm running the workshops and I'm, I'm teaching um the viewers how to write in these styles. So as part of that, I've been practicing writing in forms. So uh, the poem that I'm going to share is actually a, a golden shovel. Um, and I love this form. It's a, it's a recent poetic form that was invented, um, you know, only in the last, I think, five years, maybe even three years, um, by the incredible American poet Terence Hayes. And basically the way that it works is you take lines from an original poem and then you use each word in those lines as the end word to your new poem. So that basically by the end of writing your poem, you should be able to read the original poem down the end words of the new poem, if that makes sense. So kind of like kind of like an opposite to the acrostic poem where the first letter of the first word makes a new word. Instead, the last word of the stanza is where the line has come from. Boom. Yes. <laughs> that's a, that's a great way of explaining it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and Terrence Hayes innovated this form. The, the first one that he did was after Gwendolyn Brooks poem, um, her incredibly famous, brilliant poem, We Real Cool. Um, so what I did, um, to practice this form is I, I took the first three lines of Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese, um, which obviously is, you know, sort of an iconic poem in its own right. Um, 
and wrote it from there. So I'll just, I'll read the first three lines of her poem so that you get a sense of, of the material that I was working from. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. So those are, those are the end words for my poem. <clears throat> um, and the title is Soft Animal. Ever since that sweaty July night, you have not let yourself smile. You do not release your lead-heavy shoulders, do not leap puddles or jump sidewalk cracks. You have welded your body into an anchor tethered to something you never could have stopped. Be with me now. I love you. You are still good, yes, even though it hurts. I know you believe you owe her your grief. I know you do not think of joy as a choice anymore, not an appropriate option, but a garish costume you have lost the right to wear. You cannot bear to bask in sunlight when she may not, so you walk on the shadowed side of the street, leaning on her memory like a crutch or a crucifix. Your paleness is a penance. You bleed your knees raw with prayer. But listen, please, for her sake, for yours, live. Surviving is not a punishment. You do not need to stutter a hundred Hail Marys nightly or drive 50 miles each Sunday to lay lilies at her grave. Through this guilt, nothing grows. I need you to know the fertile, gracious world will not desert you if you stop repenting. Thank you. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Damn. Mm. <laughs> sometimes, Thank you. Sometimes you're recording sometimes you're recording <laughs> podcasts and you catch yourself just avidly listening to the poem as opposed to thinking, oh, I should be I should be orchestrating this in some variety. <laughs> that um, is the challenge. <laughs> but yeah, that that was a that was a, a joy to write, really, because I mean, that that poem, I think sometimes poems become a bit like prayers or a bit like motifs. Um, I think that, you know, depending on your relationship with poetry, it, at times, it can be almost a spiritual thing. And, and that poem sort of has that weight for me. So um, it was, yeah, a, a rather powerful experience to sort of write a new piece off of it. So yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's nice to have the opportunity to share it. There's definitely something about um, poetry as as a kind of mental pilgrimage or, mm. or, or mantras or this idea of poems being companions on journeys or poems being the journeys themselves. Yes. Um, I, I really enjoy how um, in, in, in a few of your pieces, not only Outwith that you read earlier, um, not only this piece, um, but a couple of the pieces that you have about um, dancing and movement as well. Mm. You, you, you have a, um, you have a care with like motion in your poetry. That's, um, that's, that's really um, exciting uh, to me to, to read and to listen to. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. I, I think, um, 
you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I come from a dance background and it's really important to me that the poems um, not only exist on the page as, as sort of, you know, these static texts, but also that they can really be performed in a, in a fully embodied sense and that they are never divorced from their sort of physical iteration um, to the extent to which that makes sense by I've really found um, you know there there's research into you know sort of the flow state and all of that and it can be challenging to achieve in live performance and I've, I've not done it I certainly can't get there every time but I, I find that the performances that I'm most engaged with are the ones where I'm I'm really using my body and um, relying on physicality that way so um yeah thanks thanks pj that's i really appreciate that <laughs> you are more than welcome keep up the uh phenomenal writing mm. um uh and so to to soft pivot towards um towards this uh towards this phd that you've written <laughs> um I want to, um, before we jump into it, because it is um, a fantastic document, but it is also a good 700 pages odd. Um, <laughs> could you... It's long. <laughs> yeah, it, it is long. Um, could you just um, maybe set the scene for our listeners um, as to what inspired you to start thinking about um, authenticity in spoken word um, and... Um, and and how it's been analyzed or criticized or or not analyzed and criticized. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you know there's always been as much as you know the the specific um, you know uh, critical focuses that I've taken throughout the PhD have shifted somewhat. There's always been sort of the same motivation. Um, so when I was really getting into the spoken word scene. Um, when I, I first came here, I was also doing um, quite different research. I was I was looking at Scottish political poetry written for the independence referendum. So I was really interested in how poets can express political beliefs um, through poetry and the extent to which, you know, they rely on metaphor or personal experience or national mythologies and, you know, cultural nationalism and all of that. So I was doing that sort of work, but I was also really getting into the spoken word scene as a poet and going to shows and, and doing all of this. And I quite quickly realized that there were sort of disparities between how uh, cultural critics, and by that I mean both academics, but also people writing reviews of poetry collections and fringe shows and all of that, um, there was a disparity between how these cultural critics wrote about page-based poetry versus how they wrote about spoken word poetry and, and other forms of, you know, performance-based poetics. And in reviews of, um, you know, fringe shows, for instance, spoken word fringe shows, I kept again and again seeing the words honest and raw and bare and vulnerable and real <laughs> and genuine, you know, I, I could go on all of these terms. Um, that were not even just implying, but stating outright, you know, that when a spoken word poet gets on the stage, they are effectively bearing their heart and sharing true, honest, real experiences in, um, it was often implied to be a, a somewhat spontaneous manner, right? And that they were being overtly emotional um, without filter. And, you know, <laughs> obviously you laughed just there. I, I, yeah, I also felt somewhat 
incredulous at this because my experience as someone who was getting into spoken word was that, um, you know, there was a hell of a lot of craft that was going in. And I, I didn't feel like I was getting up on stage and just diarizing that I was, um, you know, ineffectively a group therapy session, just sharing my heart. I was like, you know, I did a lot of work on this extended metaphor. And, you know, there's a lot of end rhyme and internal rhyme. And, you know, can we talk about that? Can we please talk about the craft around it? So what I became really interested in, um, interested is the wrong word, obsessive about <laughs> for the past five years is maybe a better word, um, is, is sort of the relationship between, um, authenticity, which has many denotations, but, you know, reality, honesty, presence, um, all of that originality, you know, the, the relationship between authenticity and craft, because when we talk about art and craft, these things are very heavily related to the term artifice, right? So we perceive art as something that is made and something that is crafted, and we perceive something that is authentic as something that is original and unfiltered and uncrafted. So effectively, when we describe spoken word poetry as authentic and real and genuine, we are taking away from its status as crafted. So I became really interested in this and in exploring the extent to which maybe this was connected to the fact that spoken word is often really panned as an art form and really considered to be um, low art. Uh, and obviously there's a whole discussion around, you know, how we conceive of low art versus high art and how deeply problematic and crappy those <laughs> divisions are. But, you know, Harold Bloom straight up called poetry slams the death of art, you know, and this is, this is a very commonly held idea. So I was curious in, in thinking about, okay, what's the connection here? To what extent is our perception of spoken word as a forum for uh, honest, original, emotional sharing connected to the fact that we often pan it as a subpar art form? So that was the question that I, I set out to answer through the PhD. Thank you. And so how did you then go about gathering the research? Um, because I think I spoke to you and you were, I spoke to you in 2018, maybe 17. even 2017. <laughs> Long time <Wow>. ago, yeah. <laughs> time flies, yeah. Cool. I remember speaking to you, um, first having a preliminary conversation about it, because it was a conversation that was, um, you know, uh, it happened after every Fringe. It mm -hmm. happened after most um, uh, poetry shows that, that I was attending at the time. There was a need within the practitioners of the art for there to be some agreement on not only a critical framework, but some agreement on what we were judging when we were trying to evaluate poetry, whether yeah. it was a, um, you know, um, a, a feature set at a poetry night, whether it was an hour one person show, whether it was, um, you know, uh, something akin to, to, to what Loud Poets does for the Fringe, if it mm -hmm. was like, you know, a, a rolling show, a produced show. And um, I cannot overestimate how overjoyed and uh, and and inspired I was to know that you were carrying out this this research with a view to to to, to writing something that could be used by by not only poets but teachers, um, authors, or even just people interested in poetry. And um, mm -hmm. I was very excited that you were writing this document. So could you just speak about how you 
carried out the research and and uh, and and what you found out during this research time because it was a good few years you were writing and researching this yeah it took me five years from start to end um which you know no shame in that no shame in that phds take a long time particularly when you're when you're doing other work on the side um yeah that thank you for saying that and i um i do i do want to acknowledge you know there as you say there are serious issues with there being a lack of a clear critical framework and critical discourse around spoken word in the uk um but i'm incredibly grateful that there are other people who are building this you know i i certainly never want to claim to be the only one. Um, there's a fantastic critical anthology coming out um, in April, edited by Lucy English and Jack McGowan, um, coming out from Rutledge, uh, which is called Spoken Word in the UK. It's now available for pre-order. And I'm so, so excited that that collection of essays is going to be coming out. Uh, Pete Bearder is doing fantastic work here. There's a bunch of new Spoken Word PhDs that are cropping up. I keep getting emails from people starting them, which is brilliant. So um, as much as you know, you're absolutely right that there are so many frustrating conversations around the need to build this discourse, I think that... Um, there are some people who are now on it. So thank goodness for that. Um, but yeah, when when I was getting started in it, uh, the way that I, I did my research, it, it's funny because usually the first year of a PhD is mostly focused on gathering research. And, you know, I started in the sort of traditional way of Googling articles about spoken word poetry and slam poetry. And um, within about a month, I'd sort of read them all. <laughs> and I went, okay, well, this is an issue. Um, and in part, again, because this is a relatively new art form, um, specifically talking about spoken word poetry, obviously, you know, oral accessible poetics have been around since Homer. You know, this this is not new in that regard. But um, when we talk about, you know, trying to describe and, and delineate genre, you know, this specific form, which has been very heavily shaped by the North American Poetry Slam and, and things like that, is still relatively recent in the last 40 years. So there are some explanations for the lack of critical discourse. But as I mentioned earlier, a big one is just the fact that it's still considered low art, which is unworthy of analysis, right? So I very quickly realized, okay, there's not a huge amount out there. And my initial PhD proposal had been much more specific. It had been sort of building off of my master's, and I was going to look at um, cultural nationalism and, and UK political spoken words. I, I had a really niche focus. And then I just realized, I don't even know where to begin with that, because we don't have the ABCs to start talking about it, right? If we don't have the critical discourse to the, the critical framework to, to analyze this, you know, if, if I don't even have the language to talk about it, then I, I can't do a deep dive into it. First, we need to build the ABCs. So I started doing much more general, broad reading into a lot, a lot of different critical fields. So performance art um, was a huge one. I did a lot of research into audience studies, um, authenticity studies, which is its own field, a lot of... Um, interesting reading into tourism studies, um, because they look a lot at, you know, exotification and um, how place is often, you know, fantasized as authentic when in reality, it's sort of, you know, package holidays and all that. Um, but in any case, I, I quickly realized, look, I'm going to need to dip into other fields in order to start building this discourse because poetry, spoken word poetry is not just text on a page, right? It is live performance. It is audience interaction and engagement. Um, there's so much that is going on there. And I was really interested in the 
sociological implications of what was happening too. I, I have a quite a long section on um, the performance of you know race and class and gender in spoken word and how much our perceptions of authenticity are connected to our perceptions of the audio, of the uh, performer's identity. Right. So I needed to start looking at those. Um, and the, the other major consideration when I was collecting data for this and, and doing my research was we don't really have records of, um, what the poets think about this, right? As you said, so often these conversations happen after gigs at the pub and, um, they're not being recorded and and they're not getting out there. And so I said, right, I want to record these conversations. Um, so I ended up, I had a, a much smaller goal. I was initially going to interview about 25 poets. I ended up interviewing 70 poets across the UK. Um, the interviews averaged about an hour and a half. So we got really, really deep into the issues. Um, and I talked to them about a lot of different things. So about their own creative practices, about their perceptions of different issues in the scenes. So we talked about, you know, the extent to which they thought that audiences perceived everything that they said on stage as honest and true. Um, we talked about the concept of safe spaces and politics and poetry. We talked about the histories of their local scenes and what was changing and, you know, digitizing and all of that. So there were a lot of really amazing conversations there. Um, and that was the core data that I used, um, to build the PhD. And I should say, um, I've graduated now, but there's one step left that I'm still developing, which is getting all of those conversations into a public archive, um, which will be fully transcribed. So, you know, completely accessible in that regard um, and public access. So that should be out at some point early next year. But yeah, that, that was sort of the, the research process that went into it. Um, thank you for explaining, because um, I'm, I'm aware that I personally have a have a huge interest in um, the world of uh, academia and poetry, mm. but that's not where um, where all of our listeners will be will be coming in uh, to, to that interest. And so, thank you for for laying that groundwork, especially um, to talk about how poets um, were also needing these conversations and how it does benefit anybody interested in the work. Um, and so, maybe. Yeah. Um, maybe we could do like a case study of um of 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 the authenticity debate uh, and and how yours and how your scholarship has informed it and the example i'd like to use is uh the cult of the noble amateur <laughs> and uh <laughs> yep yep so uh to set the scene this was an article written in i think it was the poetry review um yeah pn review yeah PN review, which um, which made the argument that um, the sort of confessional in air quotes style uh, used by uh, poets like uh, Rupi Kaur or uh, Holly McNish, uh, they even put uh, K Tempest in this. <laughs> um, the argument that this uh, article made was that these poets are um, they're in the tradition of. Uh, the unfiltered, the real, the honest, and the uncrafted. Um, yes. Yeah. Could you just explain what's going on in this argument and also um, the pushback that you offered um, with your criticism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny. I was talking to someone the other day about um, she she's considering doing a PhD and, and she was asking me what kept me motivated. And I, I said, and this is true, anytime that I 
got frustrated with the PhD and felt tired and didn't want to continue, I reread this article um, and, <laughs> and went, yep, this is why I'm doing this, because uh, it just pisses me off so much. Um, effectively, and right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the first paragraph uh, for any listeners who aren't familiar so that you get a sense of, of what it's like. Um, this is by Rebecca Watson. It was, it was published in January 2018. And she says, quote, Why is the poetry world pretending that poetry is not an art form? I refer to the rise of a cohort of young female poets who are currently being lauded by the poetic establishment for their, quote, honesty and, quote, accessibility, buzzwords for the open denigration of intellectual engagement and rejection of craft <laughs> that it characterizes their work. The short answer is that artless poetry sells, um, end quote. And this just enraged artless. me. It's so, artless. it's, yeah. Um, so I just want to make it clear that uh, Rebecca Watts was relying on a lot of deeply problematic and deeply classist and ableist and um, elitist, frankly, uh, understandings when she wrote this and it was really I, I was already looking at the idea of um you know honesty being pitched in a binary against craft um I was already looking at how gender and age uh factor into our perceptions of authenticity and race um particularly race really um but I mean this, let's be real when yeah. it comes down to it it gets stereotyped as young black yep. poets yep. are authentic and yep. they're always slammy and they're always spoken word and they have no craft and you know on the flip side elderly uh pale male stale live literature readers are all craft and no authenticity and exactly. both positions are wildly reductive exactly yeah you've you've just summarized one of my chapters better than i think i could yeah it's it's exactly that our perceptions of what is real and what is honest are incredibly heavily based on cultural stereotypes about race about age about gender about you know sexuality about all of these things and um yeah, as you said, you know, it, one of the things that makes me incredibly angry and, and many others as well, obviously, is, you know, the typecasting of spoken word as, quote, urban poetry, because I just go, well, what the hell do you mean, urban poetry? What do you what do you actually mean? Say what you actually mean. And then we can unpack all of the stigmas and biases and stereotypes that are going into that assumption. Right. Um, unless you're unless you're trying to claim that spoken word thrives in urban environments because they're, you know, heavily concentrated centers of individuals where live events can thrive. Um, get in the bin. Right. So I. Yeah. So basically, um what Watts is claiming here is that um, honesty and, and authenticity are really fetishized within contemporary poetics um, and that we have come to associate these things with quality. And to a certain extent, right, I, I do think that she's on to something in terms of the fact that so much of the discourse around spoken word poetry does celebrate authenticity. And it says, again, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, oh, that's so real, that's so authentic, that's so genuine. I really love that. Um, and I think it's important when we talk about these things to acknowledge, right, a lot of folks, when they go to spoken word shows, are looking for a sense of genuine connection. They're looking for, um, you know, 
they they perhaps want to see individuals appearing vulnerable and sharing traumas and and you know sharing what they believe to be authentic truths right um and on the flip side of that many poets approach the stage for similar reasons i don't want to discount you know in in any sort of discussion of this the fact that for many poets this is um a platform to share truths and it is a platform to at least to a certain extent, be open and vulnerable and, you know, spontaneous and unfiltered. Um, for many of us, that is the reality. And, and you know, I include myself in that. But, but <laughs> the other side of it is that there is also craft. Um, nothing is black and white, right? I, you know, I have a poem about, um, you know, a friend's attempted suicide, which is incredibly close to me and, you know, is very much grounded in fact and grounded in autobiography and you know the the narrative conveyed in it is factually accurate right that doesn't mean it's a it's a bad poem um that means that i i put a huge amount of work into developing the poetic aspects of that so these two things can be true something can be autobiographical and grounded in fact and it can also be incredibly well crafted. So what I get frustrated with is the implication that there is a binary, which is mutually exclusive, that you cannot have both. And that's what Watts was getting at. And um, sorry, rather, that's what Watts was implying that 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 binary exists. Um, And and in a manner which was entirely oblivious to the fact that the three targets that she picked out, which were, you know, uh, Holly McNish, Rupi Carr, and Kay Tempest, were, you know, very much all individuals with relatively marginalized identity characteristics. Um, so, you know, she could have talked about Shane Koizan. She could have talked about, you know, uh, Luke Wright or or any number of people. Well, Luke Wright's maybe less a good example because much of his work is fictional. But, you know, any of the, the male poets who are also writing, you know, work which could be perceived as confessional, um, but instead chose to focus on young, um, you know, female, uh, K Tempest at the time, I, you know, was publicly identifying as female, obviously now, um, trans, uh, you know, individuals who, who are not, as you said, the white, old, pale, stale males. So that's what I found interesting. And that's what I found frustrating. And that's what I was trying to really combat through my research. Yeah. Um, is there a way? So this is a question that I hadn't uh, planned. Um, uh, I don't uh, tend to script these interviews. I respond to what comes out. Um, mm. And you said that each time that you were having a bit of a wobble with the uh, PhD, you would come back and read this article <laughs> because it infuriated you so much. Um, and so my question is, this frustration and anger with um, with how... Uh, with how shallow the analysis of spoken word poetry is, um, how do you think that we can use this energy? Because it's something that many poets feel, and this is just from my own personal experience, speaking to people over the past five, six years, mostly in England, but across the UK. How do you think that poets can use this energy to try and change the conditions about criticism around spoken word? Hmm. Yeah, it's because we all have it. We all have this energy. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it was funny. One of the questions that I asked in my interviews was, um, 
what what is your perception of the critical discourse around spoken word in the UK? And I'm I'm not lying here, PJ. The majority of people laughed in my face, and they said, "There's a critical discourse. <laughs> you mean that exists?" Um, and the rest of them just said no. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I I think so many of us are frustrated. Um, I mean, I think that in the first instance, the best thing to do is just to prove them wrong through proving them wrong. And, and, you know, obviously continuing to write work, which is excellent and innovative and interesting and, and all of that, um, to not let it get to you and to not be bullied by quite frankly, elitist, um, people who are bad at their jobs. And I'm not saying this to bully other academics. I'm saying this because it's bad. It's bad criticism. It's bad academic writing to base judgments on generalizations and inaccurate assumptions and biases is poor academic writing. Um, the week after that, that PN review article came out, I, um, I went into a bit of a cave and wrote like a 6,000 word rebuttal to it based on scholarship. Because I said, look, if you want to make baseless claims in the name of um, being a smart person with a degree, I can do the same thing and actually base it on academia. So here you go. Um, that's that's where my pettiness comes out is in uh, multiple multiple citations, um, but uh, yeah, I, I think you know one one way is just to continue furthering these discussions and you know talking about what what does it mean when we talk about this genre and what do we want from it too because that's the thing I don't have all the answers you know no no one does um, and when I was asking poets in my data collection, you know, what do you want from a critical discourse? Um, there were a lot of different opinions. The main one was just sort of a deeper understanding of the history and styles of this form and an acknowledgement that we are not just a new fad that arose out of nowhere. Um, an acknowledgement that this is a form grounded in, um, not only different literary styles, but political movements um, in movements based around the celebration and legitimization of identities. You know, we owe a lot to the Black arts movement, for instance, um, and also an understanding of how, you know, local and global styles have intersected. So obviously in the UK here, you know, we, we so often talk about spoken word as an American thing, but as much as there have been American influences, we are also heavily influenced by the Mercy Beat movement. And, you know, although I think that this can get overstated sometimes, you know, the, the sort of Celtic storytelling tradition and the Bardic tradition and all of that, you know, there are a lot of local precedents for this art form, um, you know, alternative comedy and all of that as well, you know, performance art. So, um, yeah, without, without going too much into it, I, I think, it's really important that we cultivate an understanding of our own history and our own styles and that, you know, ultimately critical discourses should never be imposed from the top down, by which I mean, you know, don't wait for academics to tell you what your work is. Don't wait for us to, you know, create, create the language, um, create your own language. You have that power, you know, say, my work is, you know, contemporary spoken word with a kinetic aspect or, you know, my work is 
alternate surreal spoken word. You know, you have that power. And I think so often academics bully practitioners into not feeling like they have the agency to define their own work. And that's a problem. Um, You absolutely do have that agency. Um, And a, a critical discourse and, you know, a critical framework and an understanding of what genre is, is best when it is developed, not only from the scholars working in the field, but from the practitioners, from the audiences, and is really a collective discussion of what it means to create work in this form. Yeah. You can't see me, but I'm nodding so, so (laughs) fervently right now. (laughs) Good. Yay. Good, good, good. Um, uh, we're 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 ever so close to uh to our allocated hour of recording time um but if uh, if anybody would like to find out more about um your scholarship and your research i know you said you were finishing archiving it um or archiving the interviews at least are there any plans to get this information out there are there any plans for people to be able to interact with this apart from you know building their own critical frameworks within their poetry Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, the archive when it comes out, and again, I'm I'm aiming for early next year, early uh, 2021. Um, that will be archived through the um, Scottish Oral History Centre, which is based in Glasgow, but it will be a digital resource. Um, the best way to find updates on that is to um, you know follow my website or follow my Twitter. So I'm just at Katie Ailes um, on most platforms and things. I am Googleable. Um, <laughs> and uh, there, there is also, I want to give a shout out for um, Swear, which is the spoken word educators and academics, uh, not network, word starting with R. In any case, um, this is a, a group that was sort of spearheaded by Pete Bearder in March of this year um, and has become sort of a digital community of people who are interested in the critical discourse around spoken word, um, both as academics, as educators, and as practitioners as well. So um, we have a Facebook group, we have a Twitter presence um, at some points on my to-do list to make a website. Um, but, but really the impetus behind that was that I know for me, and I think for a lot of people interested in this art form, um, as scholars and practitioners, it can feel really isolating because there isn't a lot of creative work, uh, sorry, critical work out there on it. So um, it was really to to just get everyone in the same room having these conversations. So if you just follow uh, Swear Network on Twitter, you can get updates from people who are you know interested in cultivating this art form. Um, and this, you know, the, the critical discourse responding to this art form. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of where to find things. Yeah. Wonderful. And, um, all of those uh, links alongside some of the references that you've heard throughout the episode will all be in the description. Mm -hmm. Um, so to finish off this episode, would you like to leave us with a final poem? Yeah, I've been trying to figure out what to what to share here. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think I'll do this one. Um, this is a, a poem called Spangled, um, which again, you know, connecting back to, to Outwith is somewhat about um, 
accent and an understanding of home and place and all of that. Um, and it's also because I recognize that, that my first two poems were less sort of spoken wordy and more pagey. And um, I'm also really interested in sort of the fluidity between genre in that sense. These are all poems that I've performed live and that I have printed on the page. So it's it's quite an interesting thing there. Um, but yeah, this is... Uh, when I teach spoken word, I've, I've gotten to, into the habit of doing a lecture every year at Strathclyde on spoken word. Um, I sort of am really interested in breaking down what is fact and, and what is performed authenticity. And again, we could talk about this for, for ages, but you know, how we perform reality and truth and all of that. And um, for me, this is a poem again, uh, where it is grounded in fact, it starts with the true story, but I'm really interested in seeing how we can use form to develop it beyond fact. Um, so yeah, I'll take, take a sip of water and then begin. Spangled. So it was 2014 and I am working as an exchange teacher at a high school in Southwest England. We are doing a unit on the poetry of World War II, today a piece written in the voice of the soldier who dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. And the teacher turns to me and asks, Katie, would you mind reading it? It would just sound right in your voice. Because this is the voice of the man who dropped that bomb. This is the pitch and tone of the way he phoned it in, the deed done, and the way he told his wife he loved her later safe at home. This is the generic American accent packaged and sold alongside the dream, but me? I got all of that for free. I was made in America, her trace inescapable on my lips laced with her supersized greasy greed, her creeds too often forgotten, my throat coated with a history I find hard to swallow. Each time I open my mouth, I trip over my tongue to apologize for the judgments. I am sure you are forming because for some, I know this voice lands like napalm, acidic on listening ears who still fear ever hearing this voice in their country ever again. And for some, it sneaks in like snakeskin, like the lies we tell read my lips and my syllables are shifting away from responsibility. Our sins bit back. We can talk our way out of anything, out of guilt, out of shame, out of blame, out of any reason not to bomb. That place, America, you green-eyed glutton. I burnt back your dollar bill heartburn, your oily feast thieved from other nations, slurped down greedily, feeding only yourself as though you have forgotten how to share. I choke on the walls. You tell me we need to build to keep out those who don't speak like us. You say, this is America. Speak American. <laughs> forgetting that this quilted tongue was cut and sewn from clothes you borrowed from other homes. You forget that we patchwork stitched this speech together, shaped it through conversations between people from a million places, voices converging, rhythms merging into melodies, the mellowing together in the mouths of babes. We made this voice. And then we learned how to use it. We spoke those states into being using hope and spit and these tones. This is my mother's tongue and hers and hers. My father's low song, my city's prints stamped in. Subtle as the taste of the drinking water, but still there. Delicious in its own way. Now 
I hear my voice is shifting. Glasgow rolling my tongue into softer shapes, so maybe, America, your telltale twang will be rinsed from my mouth by the oceans I crossed to leave you, leaving only the salty taste of distance. But I think some part of you will stick, a fish hook dragging me back, tagging me with my birth, so I am learning, slowly. But it's not my voice that matters. It's how I use it. Thanks very much. Mmm, clicks, clicks, clicks. <laughs> oh. Um, oh, thanks, PJ. <laughs> final, final question. A question yes. that um that has been asked numerous times on the Luna Poetry podcast, and a question that I'm happy to ask you. Why poetry? Oh, I once gave this answer, and I think it's a bit corny, but I'm sticking with it. Um, poetry is, to, to write and to read poetry is to shake the kaleidoscope through which we perceive the world. Um, which is, again, a bit of a corny metaphor, but I think through poems, we we can really alter our perception. We can understand the world in different lights we can empathize we can um renew our vision really um and i you know i understand everyone who says you know poetry changes nothing or you know this is just an art form but art can be incredibly powerful particularly in this year of isolation and loneliness and frustration um for so many people poetry can be a comfort and an inspiration and a provocation. And that's why it's so important that we just, we just keep making, that we just keep creating and we just keep listening. Yeah. Katie Ailes, dancer, writer, creative <laughs> producer, scholar, academic. Um, thank you for coming on the Luna Poetry Podcast. Thank you so much, PJ, and huge congratulations on your first episode. This is so well-deserved, and I'm so, so excited to see where you take Lunar from here. So congrats. Cheers. And there it was. First episode in the can. I'd like to say a quick thank you to Katie for her time and to you for sticking around. Give yourself a pat on the back for listening all the way through. I'm glad you could make the time for us. For more from Katie, go to katieales.com, that's A-I-L-E-S. And for anyone interested, the interviews that Katie conducted as part of her PhD study will be published in the Scottish Oral History Centre in 2021, fully digitally available worldwide as well. Some previous guests of this show are also featured in Katie's study, like Caroline Bird, who is in episode 101, Anthony Noxoguru and Dean Atta, who are both in episode 99, and Matt Abbott, uh, who is in episode 91. Um, I'm also featured, um, and the man himself, David Turner, too. Before we go, just a couple of admin bits and notes of gratitude to do before we round off this episode. I'd like to thank Ella Jean for her production skills and encouragement. To each and everyone listening, wherever, however, whenever you're listening or reading, thank you. 
and to David and Lizzie Turner for entrusting me with this archive and platform they spent years building and for believing that I was the right person to carry on this work of speaking and listening that values underrepresented artists within poetry and gives ample space for their nuance, for proper context and therefore a fuller understanding of their work. Hosting this podcast isn't a position I hold lightly. Being handed a platform of thousands of regular listeners who are interested and engaged in poetry is a big privilege and I'm going to use that privilege, this power, to do my best in sharing the radical act of conversation with you, our listening community. Expect to hear traditionally marginalised voices centred, dissenting narratives highlighted and open dialogue at the forefront of each of the upcoming episodes from now in perpetuity and of course, as always, remarkable poetry. Speaking of upcoming episodes, we'll be dropping them every two weeks, or at least that's the plan. Upcoming guests for the first set of conversations include some brilliant poets I'm also proud to know as friends and peers within this crazy poetry world, including publishers Jake Wild Hall and Amy Aker of Bad Betty Press, the former Sheffield Poet Laureate and jazz rapper extraordinaire Otis Mensa. Uh, and Bridget Hart of Burning Eye Books as well, alongside a few big names I cannot wait to announce. (laughs) But stay tuned. Um, Like I say, we're aiming to drop new episodes every two weeks, but we'll review that as we go. Um, And a final reminder that you can find a full and free transcript of this episode on our website, which is lunapoetrypodcast.com. I'm also going to be dropping some blogs on there as well. Um, You can also find all of the previous episodes and their accompanying transcripts there too. Uh, You can keep up with all Lunar news by following at Lunar Poetry Podcasts on Facebook or at Lunar Poetry Podcasts pod on twitter alongside subscribing to us wherever you go to get your quality podcasts whether that's acast apple Podcasts, spotify soundcloud whatever we're everywhere in it if you enjoy the podcast please share it with somebody who might also enjoy it and as john adams famously said you will never be alone with a poet in your pocket until next time i've been your host doing the most the repeat beat poet peace out keep reading and thank you for listening